Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Debtor Dennis Maller, interviews artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And on this edition of the podcast, I have somebody whose day job uh, was similar to my day job. And now their performance job is similar, but very different to my uh, job. It is a whip circus performer and on-air announcer, Jack Lepiars. Uh, I actually discovered him through Instagram Reels. Uh, it just popped up randomly in my feed. I rolled my eyes, thought it was going to be dumb bullshit. And no, it turns out, dude, smart. He's funny. He's talented. Uh, and I went and watched more of his stuff. We go in the podcast. We talk about how I discovered him. We talk about his success on social media, which clearly led him to being a guest on this podcast uh, because that is the height of success. Uh, yes, my podcast. That's the height of success. Remember that, Eric Griffin. You started here with me, and you were on WTF. Same thing. No. Anyway, uh, he was a uh, he's a Boston guy. He lives here, uh, uh, and I found what he does fascinating and fun and interesting. He does this whole circus whip performer character act at Renaissance fairs and on street corners, and he gets to do it across the country. Uh, we talk a lot about how similar what he does is to what I do as a comedian. How we got started, the similarities, the differences, what it's like growing up in the circus, because he is the son of a circus performer. Um, I am not the son of a comedian. I'm the son of a very grouchy man that would occasionally laugh at something. Rarely. But we get into a lot of his backstory, how he got into what he does, both uh, behind the microphone at WBR, and how he got into the streets, playing with a whip, and into the circus lifestyle. So it's a lot of fun, interesting stuff. And I'm really glad uh, that he answered my random DM uh, on Instagram or uh, actually I emailed him. I found his, uh, I, the Instagram DM, I didn't want to slide into his DMS. I felt like our relationship was too early for that. I didn't want to put him out. And so I uh, sent him an email like a professional. Cause I am a professional. And this is a professional podcast. Anyway, please enjoy my conversation with circus performer and radio announcer, Jack Lepiars. And I'm hearing your nose, so if you don't mind moving your boom mic down just a hair past. How's that? Still hearing it? Let me, let me put it out here. How's that? <laughs> it's better. It's better now. Okay. Which, worst case scenario, I just have to edit out all your... I mean that's a that's a bitch to do. I'm not I'm not about that. Hey, dude, I've been doing this long enough that I can recognize breathes and ums yeah. just oh, by yeah. the visual. Oh yeah, visualization yeah. of them. Which, I'm, by the uh, way, I had to lose when I started this podcast. I was a lot heavier and much more out of shape. In the first few episodes, I started going through editing them, and I'm just listening to person talking. They're just me on the other end. Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, that's what made me lose weight is that I wanted to stop editing my breaths out of my podcast. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> had yeah, nothing I, to do with my own health, had nothing to do with wanting to look good or vanity. It was like, I don't want people to hear me sound out of breath when I'm asking questions. I think I'm the only anchor at, at the radio station who understands that like, hey, don't have your nose right up against the microphone while the other person is talking because... One, it's distracting, and two, it can sound like you're just not interested if you just like in the middle of whatever they're saying, you just go, <laughs> like, no, that's not what you want. No, sound like you're interested in what they're saying. We don't want. <sighs> we want. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. It's not hard. <laughs> you just breathe slower 
through your nose, like this nice little look. <laughs> so. well it's also like i just watched my friend and i i love her uh she's great she interviews bands like she's a school teacher and then she goes out and goes to concerts and festivals and interviews bands and yeah. she just did her first interview back from all the COVID stuff at bonnaroo and she's interviewing joe judah the lion and she's upgraded her equipment she's got two wireless microphones she's got a camera she's she's doing great she's just a journalist like she yeah. used to just write and now she's taking everything she writes and making videos which is good for her but there is no monitoring system. They can't hear themselves. And you can just hear Judah the Lion just on top of the microphone uh, like this the whole interview. And they're passing it back no, and forth between each other. No. So he's doing that. And I'm like, <laughs> I felt so bad for her. Like, it's fine for her to be able to go back and listen to yeah. and, and you know, write and, and transcript and stuff. But it's for YouTube video. It sounds so bad. And I was watching it and I'm still hitting the thumbs up because I'm a, a stupidly supportive person for yeah. women that I have uh, crushes on. Uh, and people in general, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, I was like, ah, I before don't, I didn't want to say her name before we go any further. So uh, my air conditioning is running halfway across the house. Can you hear that in the background? Nope. Not at all. Cool. Great. Um, like but hear. which, by the way, since you just took a sip out of your Spider-Man mug, let's talk about that because I saw that video. Uh, Hey, congratulations on the wedding. Um, being Thank a you. married man now. And, uh, you had, uh, let's do, I, you know, what? I'll do it. I'll do the schlocky, uh, uh, you know, morning DJ setup of like, so I heard you had some Spider-Man incident at your bachelor party. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about it, Jack? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is, so I am a big fan of Spider-Man. I have been a big fan of Spider-Man for a long time, but actually even more as an adult, as I've like come to relate to the character in the, uh, in the comics, but I've got a Spider-Man costume. Everyone knows that I love Spider-Man. I'm drinking out of a Spider-Man mug right now. And so at my bachelor party, it was bachelor party weekend, we got an Airbnb up in New Hampshire. I wake up at about 10 a.m. I'm the last person to wake up, and I can hear them all making breakfast. And I'm like, okay. So I get out out of my room, and everyone's gone. No one's there. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, maybe they're like, I can kind of hear them talking in the basement. I'm like, maybe they're just all talking, you know, telling people to wake up because I'm now awake. Um, so I step outside to get something out of the car, and I come back in, and they are all back inside in full Spider-Man costumes, <laughs> four of them, full Spider-Man costumes. None of them say anything to me except for like, good morning. It's so nice to see you. How are you? I hope you slept well. And I'm just like, I, I am far too hungover for this. And apparently what had happened is uh, they had coordinated with my now wife to pack away, <laughs> secretly pack a Spider-Man costume for me, which was almost terrible. They were texting back and forth. My wife was like, he's not going to see it unless he cleans his car for the first time in two years. And I almost did. I remember as I was packing up to go up to the bachelor party, I see a, a tote bag in the back of my in the back seat. And I'm like, "Huh, that's not mine. That must be that must be my wife's. I should I should put that back inside." Nah, no, I'll deal with it later. So, almost almost spoiled their plan unknowingly, but we got away with it. All right, and the reason I wanted to bring that story up is because obviously I saw that on social media. I was not one of the uh, men at your bachelor party. I didn't participate in that. No. I saw that on social media, and the reason I bring that up is because that is how I found you. I oh, was wow. just doom scrolling Instagram, and it came across one of your uh, Jack the Whipper videos of you. It's the one where you do uh, where you sing Frozen for a guy. Oh God, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to be. Uh, uh, here's two honest things. One, you're probably the first guest on this podcast that I have no knowledge or experience or, or relationship with without for being on it. Like I've, I interviewed Lewis black, you know, 
but I, I, I've never met Lewis Black before, but I know who he was. You know, exactly. I, Jim Jeffries yeah. has been on the show as well. I know who they are. I interviewed uh, bands that are uh, members of bands that I didn't know, but I knew other members in that band. Yeah. You know, so like, there's always some kind of connection with everybody. Either I'm a fan of them. I know somebody. I know them. You're the first person that we have never met. As far as I know, we have never crossed paths. I literally saw it. I didn't. Yeah. The thing that sold me on you was like, all right, well, he's a Boston guy. So like he's local, local. So I should talk to him. But I, I, I and here's the second bit about honesty. The first 10 seconds of the video. Uh, of that Instagram video, I was rolling my eyes like, oh, here's some dumb bullshit hacky uh, fucking live uh, mistake video, whatever. And I was like, oh, no. And I I clicked on your account and watched it. I was like, nah, dude, this this dude's real. He's got talent. He's smart. That's original, good, good content. Like just whatever this the whipping thing is and singing parody (laughs) songs on the fly. I was like, nah, this guy's good. He's got it. And I kept watching more videos. And I saw your friend Sess. Yes. I think his name. I saw him a couple years ago at Ren Fair. I pitched him on the podcast, gave him my card, told him the contact me, said I would love to, to talk to him, and he never replied. So, yeah. Yeah. well, I feel I feel bad because I feel like I did the same thing to you, which you just I think you emailed me the day before my wedding. So I was like, I was like, I saw it. I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great fit. I let me let me email him email him back, and then you know the wedding happened, and uh, you know. I think it was like a week into our honeymoon. I was just like looking back through old emails being like, I probably forgot something. I'm like, oh, crap. Sorry. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to just like blow you off. So my apologies. Oh, well, see, you apologize for, for thinking you blew me off. See, I thought you were going to apologize and you were like, and I Googled your name and it was like, oh, hacky white comic who probably wants to have a podcast defending the N-word or something like that. I'm like, ah, I can oh. get, not that dude, but I can get where that would be the initial. Not at all. Like I, I, my act has it that, you know, I can't perform in front of an American flag with this haircut because I do look like Breitbart stock photos. So, oh <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's funny. I've been getting that since I was a kid. Of like, um, depending on who you ask, I either look like Steve Rogers or like when I was uh, very young, I looked like like one of Mitt Romney's children. <laughs> you um, do have you have, you have waspy New England ras- uh, exactly, wrestling face. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's that sort of look where. Um, I think people think I'm a little too clean cut. And then I tell them about the circus and like, especially growing up in the circus, they're like, wait, 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 what? And like their brain just kind of breaks for a minute. Uh, Which let's talk about that. Let's that's a good lead way into this because that's another thing that I, 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 I have a lot of respect for the circus. A friend of mine uh, who was, you know, three years older than me in high school went to clown college, little clown college. He became part of the blue team for Barnum and Bailey for a bunch of years. And he performs in North Carolina Still is, you know, dangerously Brian or Brian dangerously, whatever it is, which I need to get him on the podcast. We, him and I need to schedule things to get on because I want to talk about his whole like there's like 20 years uh, where you just get bits and pieces about his story from other people where you run into him. and He goes, yeah, I was just playing basketball with Lawrence Fishburne the other day and blah, blah, blah. Like timeout. What? Well, how what? do you drop yeah. that name? Exactly. I just drop that name. But <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. No. It's- yeah, so growing up in the circus, how is it? First, of all, let's talk about growing up in the circus, and then let's talk about is it the the you know, this is it is it or is it not like the stereotypical fantasy that we all have of what growing up in the circus life is? How did how and why did you grow up in the circus? Well, so I grew up um, because my dad was a performer with the Big Apple Circus, um, and we spent first six years of my life with the Big Apple Circus, and then after that, he went off. He did Renaissance fairs, he did theater tours around the country, around the world, and um, it was sort of getting to your second question about whether it's like the fantasy, uh, the answer is no. 
because <laughs> um, my mother, now retired, was a college professor, very big on me getting a normal, uh, you know, American public school education. And we were in Jersey, so very good public schools, but still. Um, so it was this kind of thing where I split time between the real world and between the circus. And we kind of sort of, I would go off for a month with my dad on tour and I would take all of my homework and reading with me. And, you know, I would usually get it done on the flight back from, <laughs> from wherever we were, you know, I was like, that was like, okay, we got five hours. I can do all my homework right now. Let's do, let's just do it here. Um, so it was this weird kind of split lifestyle. It was though, you know, in the early days when we were with Big Apple, um, I think kind of what you would expect, which is sort of feral children roaming around this enclosed circus lot because we can't, you know, we know not to go on the other side of the fence. Everyone there knows who we are. So we can just kind of walk around, do whatever we want. As long as we're not causing trouble, it's fine. Um, we would sneak underneath uh, the canvas tent and watch the show from underneath the risers. We would eat the, like, the stale popcorn, the half-eaten cotton candy, like with with the like like someone's saliva still crusted on it like oh yeah we we ate it all uh despite being told so needless to say times. you are immune to covid then uh, you're immune to coronavirus well no that, that as i always say that was why i was not afraid of whatever was in the vaccine because i was like uh, i already probably got tetanus as a three-year-old so that was that was kind of the, the really fun stuff but even at the circus you know once i turned five we had a, a a regular school day and a school set schedule. It was different from what you would get nowadays, um, or even when I went off to you know to normal school. But yeah, we still had school five days a week. So when you were a kid and your dad was in the circus, there was a circus school. Oh yeah, for the yeah, kids. They, they called it because we were a one ring circus. They called it the one ring schoolhouse. <laughs> it's cute. It's cute. It's adorbs. It's the big adorbs. apple one ring. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, so that's what I'm always curious about because we know how child actors do. They're basically homeschooled. They get a tutor, they sit in their trailer, they do the schoolwork. Yeah. Occasionally between movie sets they might be going to a normal public school or more likely a private school if they're 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 upper 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 class. If they're actually successful child yes, actors, they're exactly. going to a private yeah. school of other actors, so they're going in and out. Um, so that's interesting to know that the school or that the circus provided a school for the people. So your mom, was she in those years of the, of the one apple, the big apple, one yeah. apple, one, big big, apple. the big one apple <laughs> ring circus. When your mom was not a part of the circus and she was traveling, was she just basically full-time mom or? No. Well, so she was, she was still teaching at that time. She never, okay. never took any time off. She was teaching at uh, Drew university in New Jersey. And so it was sort of the thing where like, she might come out, um, during Christmas break or like if she had a long break or, you know, during the summer, she might, she might come out. But for the most part, it was kind of like split time in Jersey, split time, even at the circus lot. Although I, I, all of my memories as a child that like aren't Christmas are at the Big Apple Circus up until about age five or six. So uh, we couldn't have been spending that much time in Jersey. Okay. And that's why I was wondering if your dad's on the road performing, your mom's at home, who are you spending more of the time with? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, so they divorced when I was six or seven. Um, okay. so basically it became a, um, and especially once we left the circus, it became a, I would spend the week with my mom. Cause also where she lived was, I think like 15 minutes walk from the school. So if I missed the school bus, I could walk pretty easily, uh, to school. Um, or, um, 
if my dad was on tour, I might um, spend more time with my mom. But it was a pretty much 50-50 split for the most part. Once I got older, my dad's house was seven minutes from the middle school, so I spent time with him. And then when we got to high school, neither one of them were close. So it was kind of just like, eh. They were sort of like, you're old enough to decide where you want to be. Just go where you want to want. And on that, since you brought up the divorce, do you think the split time traveling and being apart, do you think that led, helped contribute to your parents' divorce? I think it helped contribute to them staying together as long as they did, to be very honest with you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if they were together more often, they probably would have broke up faster. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I remember, I mean, I remember them getting in a lot of fights as a kid. And, you know, both of my parents are very, very uh, wonderful people. Uh, They are just not for each other. Um, to be very, very, to keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, okay. That's interesting. So when your parents split, is that what do you think led your father to leaving the circus and, and doing, why did he leave the circus and go independent? I don't, I'm, is it freelance yeah. independent circus performer? Yeah. Is that yeah. what, yeah. what we would call country. his role? I think it's, it's like any, you know, sort of like stand up comic, which is you're booking your, you know, you're trying to book your show in as many places as you can. Um, that was what he went to do. And I think the reason he did it was simply money. Um, what he was making at the Big Apple Circus just wasn't enough to support a family on um, com- with any kind of comfort um, involved. So he left. He went independent. Um, he's, he's been able to make a very good living at it uh, now for years. Um, but, yeah, I would say money is the reason he left. Okay. And what is what circus act does your father do? He does a little bit of everything. So now his show is called the Super Scientific Circus. So he does a lot of schools. He does theaters. Um, He does actually fewer schools. He used to do a lot of schools, but as the act has grown, it's been more theater work. Uh, Basically teaching science through circus tricks. So he'll spin a plate and explain centripetal and centrifugal force. Um, He will, uh, he has a whole circus bubble routine where he'll make these giant bubbles and he uses that to explain air pressure. You know, the reason bubbles are round is because air pressure pushes in every direction in an equal way, which is why you can't make a square bubble or a triangle bubble. Hmm. Um, He'll use whips to explain the speed of sound, 768 miles an hour. Um, What else does he do? He's got a chemistry show. He's got physics. Oh, he'll do some balancing to explain gravity and how gravity works in the center of gravity. And, you know, the reason you can balance, say, like, you know, an 11-foot ladder on your chin is because you find the center of, of gravity where gravity's pulling down equally on all sides. And therefore, it stays balanced. And the reason I ask that is because I'm I I know, your work. All I know of you so far is that you do whips. Yeah. Uh, is that the primary? The, I mean, the majority. I call of myself your work? Jack the Whipper for a reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there's well, a reason I'm not Jack the knife thrower. No. So I do have a few <laughs> other skills. I mean, like I can I can throw knives. I'm actually teaching a friend how to throw knives uh, as soon as we get off the air. Um, I can do a little bit bit of balancing. I can do a little bit of unicycling. Um. I was a little tiny bit of juggling, although my dad was always like juggling's juggling's not worth it to learn because the amount of effort you need to put into it to make yourself different is just it's not worth it. Um, But whips as a kid. So, you know, I'm a six, seven year old learning circus tricks and I've got my options of juggling, uh, wire walking or uh, aerial silks or whip cracking. And I was like, well, obviously seven-year-old Jack who (laughs) sees his cool dad cracking whips and has watched Indiana Jones more times than he can count is going to want to crack the whip. And also, I mean, just like at that age, the whip is the coolest thing. So I learned how to crack whips. Um, 
And then when I was 17, my dad got me a whip for Christmas, um, which out of context sounds so terrible, but <laughs> uh, totally normal. Uh, took it outside, started practicing with it, got good enough. And when I came up to Boston, I was like, well, I can scoop ice cream for whatever, eight bucks an hour, or I can try and uh, do a street show because um, I've got these whip skills. I might as well put them to use. And that was how that was how I started. Okay, yeah, because I was wondering how much of you is following in your father's footsteps when it comes to that. Because if he's a whip cracker and you're a whip cracker, all right, that makes sense. He gave you the whip. Uh, he, you know, you saw, you obviously idolized him growing up, so you wanted to be like him. But there was, there's always those two stories when when somebody follows in their father's footsteps. It's either because their father led them, or a parent in general led them down that path, or they did it to spite their parent down that path. So that's why I was, was wondering which which road were you. You're the one where he embraced it. Yeah, you know, he embraced you. You learning it, taught you some stuff, and you wanted to, you know, delightfully be like him. I don't think it was either. To be honest with you, I think he sort of let me come to it of my own accord because there was a good stretch in the middle where you know being being the circus kid in middle school is not good for your social capital. <laughs> where I wanted nothing to do with the circus. Um, and I think what it was was um, I realized one I could make more money. Uh, doing circus work than I could, like I said, scooping ice cream because I'd had that job. Um, and then also, um, it was sort of, he when he got me the whip, there were very few whip lessons. It was sort of like, the, the joke he always tells when someone asks him to teach him how to whip is, you want to learn just how I did? And they're like, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, go take your whip and go outside and figure it out. <laughs> so I think it was it was the kind of thing where if I had something I wanted to work on a specific trick, what's the technique, I could go to him. But for the most part, it was sort of, I'm not going to push you in this. If you want to do it, you can do it. Um, but you got to you got to go practice. Um, and that was that was the way he and I both approached it. So for me, it was mostly just kind of like, a, all right, I'm a senior in high school. Uh, I'm a little bored. I might as well just keep practicing this. Um, and that was that was where we went from there. Yeah, because you know what? Uh, very similar to me as growing up was my, you know, if I had exposure to to balancing and juggling and, and circus acts, I probably would have gone that that road. But what I had two things was either I could uh, continue to practice uh, cl- close-up magic or making people laugh. And luckily, the making people laugh is the one that got me punched less in school. So that's yes. the path that I've continued yes. down. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the same thing, which is like kids are like, there's that age between like 13 and 17 where kids just, I would say even 12 and 17, where kids are just unimpressed by any any cool stuff you can do. And in fact, like, I think they're trying to look cool by not being impressed by anything where it's like the cooler stuff you do, the less they care or like the yeah. less they have to care. So, yeah. but I mean, everyone and, loves to laugh. So, and trust me, I've, you I've, as a stand-up comedian, I have nieces and nephews that are getting around that age of not caring about things. Yep. Uh, one of them actually, I think is, uh, he's applying to colleges this year, Ooh. Uh, which by the way, there was a chance he was going to come up here to Boston and, and go to MIT. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Then I get to hang out with them. Then I realized I'm a 40 year old dude hanging out with a 19, with an 18 year old kid. That's probably not what I should be doing. Uh, that's not that's not going to make him look cool to his friends, and it's going to make me look less cool to the people that already don't like me. So there was there was a time in my my early twenties. I was fairly recently out of college, and I was dating a girl who was still in college. And it was like I never, even though I was not old, I was still in my early twenties. 
I still felt like the old man who's like going back to his high school dig. Like that Matthew McConaughey, like, good thing about a high school girls, they say the same age and I keep on getting older, whatever it was. That's a Matthew McConaughey impression. But you know what? That's what we're going to, that's what we're going for. <laughs> well, I had, uh, uh, I got hired to do a private gig for like a D Malay uh, group, which is like, uh, you know, uh, junior Freemasons. Um, and they picked, somehow they just, they were doing this event. They Googled Boston comedians. They found my name. They right. saw my act and they're like, yeah, hey, D Malay master, book this guy. That's how I, I thought the booking came through something else. And they're like, no, they just Googled you, Googled Boston comedian, found you and liked you. And every kid loving the act. And I'm not, I'm not a child performer. I'm, no. you know, kind of dark, uh, you know, dry, kind of goofy, but you know, I'm, I can do a clean act, no. but it's not the kind of clean act for kids. They're just going to, cause it's, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of thinking. It's not in any way, shape, or form goofy. It's, I'm not doing balloon animals. I'm not a clown, yeah. you know? Well, yeah. But these like, teenage kids yeah. are, are loving the act, except for like three of them. And they're being the too, school, too cool for school kind of guys. And they started heckling back. And I did this. I just stopped and I went, because I don't need to put up with this. I was like, look here, guys. You guys think you're cool and all this. And I said something slightly risque. And they're like, oh, you're racist. And it's like. You know, you know what racism is? Room full of 99% white kids and one black kid? You don't even know. No, but yep. here's the thing. I already have my check. It's going to clear. Everyone else in this room's having a good time. You could either choose to continue, be like them and have a good time, or I could just leave. And then everyone will be mad at you three. The decision is yours. What is it? And they're like, all right, fine. And it's like, I, you know, I, I'm not going to try and appeal to you kids uh, that are clearly don't want it. I'm just going to level with you. I'm going to talk to you like a human and a, like an adult and be like, look, here's the situation. We can have fun or you can sit there and be miserable and no one in the room is going to, uh, no one's going to walk out here thinking you're cooler than me because of it. Yeah. Well, that's also one of the, the really nice things about my act is very few people are bold enough to heckle the guy with a whip, which is a nice <laughs> feeling. And then the whip just lends itself to so many, to so many jokes. And like, you know, my heckle clapbacks, are not especially original or especially good. You know, I think you might have seen the I'm not your mother last night when someone told me to put a target in my mouth. Um, <laughs> most of the time, my 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 clap back is just a very quick shut up and just move on. Um, yeah. And that's that's all I need to do. Uh, just just because, you know, so much of my show, I mean, the I mean, the French character, I am Jexy Whip. It is so nice to see you. It's not, shut up. And then, you know, just, <laughs> you know, just dropping that accent gives it such a force behind it or a weight behind it that people are like, oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah, because you know, and your your thing is predominantly crowd work. Like yeah. I'm lucky enough as a comedian that I rarely get heckled for multiple reasons. One, I'm very imposing. I may be five foot six, but I have a I I'm broad chested, I have you know broad shoulders. I take up space on stage. Which is both a good good thing and a hindrance for me because if I don't have the right energy, with my boisterousness, my my intimidating looks, that, that I'm uh, you know I take up space on that I'm very energetic. I move around. I can be a quick turn off the audiences, right? So I have to always manage that. That sometimes those audiences' preconceived notions of how I look and how I present myself can be a complete and utter shutdown, or. I could play into it and acknowledge their, 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 their things and, and make them feel at ease and comfortable and be a little goofier and sillier so that all of this is easier. But that also stops a lot of people from wanting to buck up and say something because like, ah, he looks like he 
might <laughs> fly off the handle. He looks like he yeah. might have a bomb under his jacket. Like, <laughs> like, like, that quells a lot. And also, I talk so fast and so loud yep. and continuously, you don't have a chance to get a word in edgewise. Most of my hecklers, I just bowl right over them. They'll start yep. saying something and I'll just keep going and they yep. can't. A, you're not going to over talk me in general. Two, I'm also amplified. You're not going to win this battle, pal. Exactly. Trust me. Yeah. So I don't have to deal with hecklers a lot. Whereas yours, you know, you're surrounded by people. You're doing a thing. You're kind of interactive. The only time I have hecklers or situations where I have to deal with someone with a heckler, which I'm usually pretty good at, uh, to pat myself on my own back. Uh, and the only reason I'm going to pat myself on the back is because I have an uh, itch between my shoulder blades. But there you go. There you is go. that uh, I can deal with them. You have to deal with them. So you've had to develop that. Like, you can't practice crowd work. You can't practice dealing with actors. You just have to be in the moment and do it. So how long do you think it took you? I mean, I'm sure you could learn some tricks of the trade, some things that you saw your father and other people do. And you got to hope that you recall those moments, the times you need them. But what was the process for you of trying to like, because me as a comedian, I can record all my sets, go back through, and I can write something down and I can go, okay, the next time somebody says something like that, I can say this. Is it similar with that? Or is it just you had to learn sink or swim? Um, I think it's mostly sink or swim. Um, You know, I've never had a situation where a heckler has been loud enough to shut down my show. Because, I mean, I'm kind of like you, which is I talk pretty fast, which is, you know, I started street performing. So that'll teach you to talk real fast so the audience doesn't walk away. Um, But then also, I mean, if I don't want to hear a heckler, all I do is just crack my whip a bunch of times. Um, The only thing... yeah. Yeah, you got that. Like, I'm sorry. Do you have something to say? I'm sorry. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. I'm like, I, I could probably even just do that and it would get a laugh. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't have that opportunity. I'm like, excuse me. What is it? You, what you said, sir? I'm sorry. I can't hear you. But I think the other thing that I do, and this is sort of intentional just by the nature of the fact that I am a whip act. And um, for a lot of people that is intimidating for a whole host of reasons is uh, I try to be as unintimidating as possible in character, uh, which is I draw on a little mustache. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, why don't you just grow the mustache? But the the drawn one is silly. It's silly. The drawn mustache is hilarious. And it lets people know right off the bat that this is going to be a silly, dumb show. And that's what I want. I want people to be, I don't want anyone coming out and being like, what's that man doing with a whip? That's a little strange in 2022. Uh, I want them to be like, oh, this guy's dumb and this is going to be fun. Let's sit and watch. Um, so it's that. But then it's also um, the way I dress is very, I would say, fancy, extra, mm-hmm. shall we say. And then also it's a lot of self-deprecating comedy uh, once I get into the more scripted part of my show, which helps kind of deal, like it almost gets the hecklers on my side. So I have, I've had a running joke for years uh, at the top of the show. I say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jackson Whipper and I am French. And then I kind of like do the, mm, so, so maybe I'm French, uh, French-ish. Um, and then I joke, that's an excuse for anything that goes wrong in the show. So if I mess up later in the show, the heckler isn't like, you suck. The heckler's like, you're French. It's okay. <laughs> I host trivia and I have a similar bit in that uh, I I can't be trusted to do math because I went to six years of community college and didn't graduate. So that's my get out free card for every Hold time. Up. I don't know an answer. I Hold don't up. know how to pronounce something. 
Have you ever done trivia up in Newburyport or Salisbury? Uh, if I did, I did it as a fill-in. Okay. All right. Never mind. Because I, I feel like I went to, I'm like, I'm, I went to trivia one time. I dated a girl who lived up near, near that area. And I'm like, oh, wait, hang on. Was that you? No. But I guess Maybe. I mean, I, I didn't do it regularly it's been like up seven there. years ago. So uh, that's about when I started. Who knows? Do you? Uh, is it? Wait, Newburyport. The only thing I know about Newburyport is Grog and Tankert. That might right? have been. It's, it's been a long time. I'm not. I am not. I am no longer with this significant other. What I <laughs> distinctly remember was any time this trivia person would say the next category is, everyone would go science. That's that was that. What that is very trivia. That's a, the company for Stump. That was our big thing. Okay. Uh, but it also permeated to all other uh, trivias. Okay. So there's a lot of trivias that, that do that. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, that's been lost, yes. which is, uh, as I found out, is that that did not progress through. Like, that is a small thing. Like, uh, I, because I would do it as, uh, from, you know, we're all doing it in because of Thomas Dolby's song. Um, and, you know, we're all trying, I do it sh- s- distinctly in the voice of that song where it's like, uh, and, and uh, next category is going to be science. Yeah. And then everybody else yells back science. Uh, there you go. And yeah, but well, that's now you got I'll find like one or two, if at best one person might do it. And I'll be like, thank you. Thank you. Well, you got to bring it back. And now because no one's doing it, it's going to be your thing. And no yeah, one will I know re- that it's not originally your thing. It's also really hard to try and teach audiences to, <laughs> to, to call and respond something when you, without specifically telling them. It's like, all right, everybody. When <laughs> hey. I say science, you yell back science like Thomas Dolby. Which, by the way, here's the other thing that I found out. Thomas Dolby, because of that, has pulled his song off Spotify. Wow. Last th- Yeah, you can't find uh, She Blind No Science on Spotify. Uh, and I haven't checked recently, but it was on off that for the longest time because he wanted people to pay the royalty for it because of trivia. Oh, my God. Which is sad That's because funny. Thomas Dolby is such a great guy. In fact, he's actually teaching at Hopkins. Last time I saw hmm. anything about him a couple years ago, he came to join Hopkins as a uh, teacher, which I'm from Baltimore. So Johns Hopkins is, you know, yep. is my Harvard. Yeah. Um, which I'm never going to go to because uh, I, I'm not even allowed uh, to walk down Harvard Ave over here in Alston. So, <laughs> I mean, do you really want to walk down Harvard Ave in Alston? I mean, I do have to go oh, to that McDonald's every once in a while because that's the only thing open at times. And, of yes. course, you don't get this body type by not going to McDonald's. So, <laughs> I, I, I Actually, I went to that McDonald's about two days ago. <laughs> but let's go back to uh, so with, with the act. How has the act developed over the years? Like when you started doing it, uh, you know, as a teenager, as a street performer to now, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're, I'm 41. You're close to my age, like early, early and mid thirties, right? Early thirties, early thirties, mid, mid thirties as of, uh, mid July. Okay. So you're, you're going to be hitting mid thirties. Gray hairs are coming in. Uh, so how has your act developed over those years as a street performer to what you're doing now? So I think it's, so the street performing stuff was sort of just like, I had no idea what I was doing. I knew I could do the tricks. Um, I was using some of my dad's old lines um, mm-hmm. to, to just get through there. And it was sort of just like, let's just get comfortable in front of a crowd and make what we can. And I think I was making like 20 bucks uh, a show maybe. And like any street performer will tell you that is terrible money. That is not, yeah. <laughs> that is not sustainable money. Um, but so what that did, taught me is, it taught me real quick what jokes work, what jokes don't. Um, and then... I got to imagine self-awareness is incredibly important when you're trying to develop that kind of act because yeah. 
I think it's incredibly important in comedy, which unfortunately so many people get into the business of comedy with no self-awareness. And that's why their acts never grow. They never change. They never develop what they need to learn to be able to work with audiences and crowds and be likable and stuff like that. So I have to imagine uh, for what you're doing, self-awareness is incredibly both crucial and could also be debilitating for you. Like if you're so self-aware of, of things going poorly, you either have to realize that you're going to need to work to get better or somebody like me who, who lives with depression and anxiety, that self-awareness is such a hindrance sometimes that I have to overcome. Um, so I can imagine that self-awareness for you was both beneficial. And I don't know about your, your personal mental health or anything like that. You know, I have to talk about it. I'm not a therapist. Like I said, six years at community college, zero degrees. It's all good. Uh, I'm not qualified to talk about those things, but <laughs> I'm not qualified to talk about a lot. I'm barely qualified to read questions off a piece of paper, but, yeah. uh, th- was there some of like, I, I write through fight or flight and that's what I need. I need to be up against the wall. I need to be in that moment to come up with a punchline. Yeah. And that's usually where I do my best writing. Yeah. And then I hone things afterwards for you and your act. You know, there is a, a lot of similarities between what you're doing, what comedians do. Like when we start out at comedians, we're all doing an impression of somebody else mm-hmm. for the most part. You were doing as a, as a performer, we're doing an impression of your dad for the most part. Yes. You know, especially um, if you look at the way I move, it's very distinctive, very much my dad. I don't do, walk like that anymore. But let me actually, let me, let me, let me jump on that. And so one of the big things that helped me grow was watching other performers and the energy they give off. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some performers I'm going to give shout outs to. So like my dad sort of taught me how to move and it was sort of taking the way he moves, which is for more, uh, is for a guy who's five foot seven and trying to move like a clown, but who is also taking a bunch of dance classes and toning that for someone like me, who's uh, tall and thin. And so like my way of moving is I'll still move my legs similarly, but my upper body is much quieter. Um, he swings his arms around. I, you know, keep them kind of in place. The other thing then was watching other performers and how they talk to the audience. So there's a, a performer I love, Paolo Garbanzo, who is, I was watching him perform in the rain one day, which in <laughs> Renaissance fairs means you've got like 10 people in the crowd. And I was just miserable. I'm like, I'm doing a show. Great. This is fun. And he gets out there. He's like, my friends, we will do a show. He plays an Italian character. We will do a show and we will have fun. And I was like, oh, gosh, you have to have that joy in front of the crowd. And then there was a third performer named Johnny Fox, who is dead now. But I've actually known him since he, I was a kid, um, where I saw him talk to the audience. And it was just like he was having a, a one-on-one conversation. He was completely comfortable on stage. He was comfortable with silence, letting the joke linger. He was comfortable with all this. And I was like, that, that is how you talk to a crowd. And it was sort of years of like trying to work that kind of style in and um, get to a point where I felt comfortable enough to do that, um, that now I feel like, you know, people have described me as a stand-up comedian with a whip. I'm not a stand-up comedian, but I do try to be, you know, get some laughs in there. No, that's great to hear. I love hearing that, that you... Because I always, we always in the community say that you have to watch other comedians to get good. You have to watch what they're doing. Because I can tell you all day, all night, what things need to be good, what things you need to do uh, to get in, uh, in into the game. But also what's more important, what's the most important is just you have to figure these things out on your own. Yeah. By doing them and failing, and then by watching other people and realizing what it is they're doing. 
Because sometimes these people do these things without even realizing it. They can't even tell you what it is they're doing that makes it work. You just kind of have to experience those things. And I always say that stand-up comedy is the only art form that has to, or the only art form or form of entertainment that has to fail to learn. You have to fail at kind of, it's the only one you have to do in front of people. Like as a musician, I could sit in my garage and play a song and we could play for days, hours, years until yep. the mo until it's perfect and go out and play it and it's still perfect. Mm-hmm. I can't do that with a comedy act. Comedy can't be grown in a vacuum. You have to go out in front of people. You have to find where that line is. You have to find out what 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 works and what doesn't and why you have to then backwards way figure out why it worked here and why it didn't work here and just also accept sometimes there's no reason, rhyme or reason why it does. And with your act, which is you know, th- there's there's a lot of circus performers that are very quiet. They don't talk. It's just a routine. You know, same thing with magicians that go out there and they just do the magic. They don't say anything. They don't interact. And it's very just watch me do this thing. That's one of those things that could be performed, tested, tried, practiced over and over again. And then you do it in front of people. And it's still great and wonderful. But you're interactive. You're talking. You're doing things. You know, you're you're trying to elicit responses from a crowd. So you're another one of those very much like me and all the other comedians have to, I'm sure you did it. You failed a lot to try and get to the point where you have to learn to get better. So that's really nice and wonderful to hear. So here's a question for you. Um, as we're going back to self-awareness and, and you know, you got to fail. What is your favorite joke that you can't do on stage just because it doesn't get laughs, not because it's politically incorrect or just, uh, it just doesn't hit for some reason because I know mine. I have a bunch of those, and anything I do on stage is not coming to mind. But I will tell you, there's a joke that I do in my trivia. Yeah. Because um, for me, trivia, I don't host trivia because I like smart things. No, I'm dumb. Uh, I host trivia because it's a paycheck and it gets me to be able to write jokes. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite jokes is bringing up the thing about France. Uh, is anytime an answer is anytime the question or the answer is the word France. I always say, oh, that's where the Coneheads are from. Or I hear that's where the Coneheads are from. So the, the old SNL sketch and the old movie turned into a movie, Coneheads starring Jane Curtin and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. It, the movie started out originally as an SNL sketch. And when people would ask them, they're like, you're kind of odd. Where are you from? And Dan Aykroyd's character was like, we come from France. Oh. Yes. I... So every time I'm like, oh, and... Uh, the country we're looking for is France, which is where I hear the Coneheads are from. I, I can see that getting like one laugh from someone who's in their 40s and 50s. Yep. That's yep. and that's fine by me. I'm OK yep. with that. I, I it's, it's that is the joke that I tell to find my person. Yeah. To find yeah. that one person. It's <laughs> like, hey, I get that reference. OK. Like I, I occasionally sprinkle those out like another one of those. Again, I never told it on stage, but I probably haven't. But one of my favorite things is uh, there was an old line from a Garfield cartoon that was uh, "gur rough gnarf like sounds." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those? And the razor beak bug eyed uh, gnarf yeah, Gar- or whatever yeah. it was from yeah. Garfield. And I'm like, if I find the person that when I just I don't even mention the Garfield thing, I'll just like "gur roar gnarf like sounds." And if I could find the one woman that goes Garfield, I'm like, marry me. That's like again, That's I'm looking, amazing. I'm throwing that line out. That's my. Hail Mary pass to find the person that's going to be my friend. That's going to have the same humor as me. That is going to be the, 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 per, any person out there just like, I get that. Like, that's our thing. You know, it's like also like 
looking at like a punk rock tattoo. Like if you see like an offspring tattoo on somebody's forearm, mm. you you know that they probably empathize too much with the kids aren't all right. You know, yeah. by that song. <laughs> I remember hearing that when I was like 12 years old and just being like, I can never let this become me. I can't be one of those. <laughs> like I was so terrified that if I didn't like become successful, that was going to be me. People are like, I had that same thought. Yeah, I, people are like, what drives you for success? I'm like, the kids aren't all right by the offspring. <laughs> Crippling fear of failure. So what is your favorite line that you do that that, that in your act that nobody uh, catches? So this is right before I do my fire whip bit is um, I say there's a chance I could light myself on fire. And here's the, here's the honest truth is that happened one time. And it was many years ago. It's when I was first learning. I was doing two fire whips and I cracked them. I wasn't used to them. They caught the backs of my shoulders. They lit my shoulders on fire. So... I threw the fire whips away at someone <laughs> and I lit him on fire and he tells the story of glory. He's like, Jacques, you couldn't just stop, drop and roll like a normal person. You have to like dive through the air, roll, pop up in a pose. I turned back to him. He is tangled in the whips. Um, and I'm like, come on, throw me the whips. He's like, I can't throw you the whips. I'm like, come on, throw me the whip. And he goes, throw me the idol. No time to argue, my friend. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. As soon as you started saying, throw me the whip, I'm like, please, Indiana Jones and Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina and Indiana Jones, please. Yes. So it used to be about half the audience would laugh at that. And then it dropped down to maybe like 40% a third. And I added the line of like, every year that gets a few fewer laughs and I'm never, I am never, ever cutting it. And then like last year, I think it was like, there was one show where it got like 10 laughs. I'm like, oh, no, it is. It's time to cut it because the kids don't know Indiana Jones anymore. Oh, uh, that's yeah, that's that's sad that 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 is the situation. You know what? I mean, it's it had its run, it and again, its, it's what you can use that as the what the person who gets that is the person who's going to have that much more enjoyable of a time. Problem is, is it's the last joke I tell. <laughs> that's well kind of the last joke i mean there are a couple of jokes kind of interspersed while i've got a whip on fire swinging around my head but like that's the last like set comedy joke and then we just go straight into the the finale no let me ask uh so i've seen the videos of you on instagram at Renfair, which hasn't happened yet so obviously these videos are assuming are from last year uh last year or even older so some of them okay. um I mean, uh, one of them that I posted is as early as like 2009, I think. Oh, um, wow. Really? Yeah. Well, there I was doing a video of like how the show has grown over the years. Um, most of them have been from King Richard's Fair last year. A few of them are KRF uh, 2018. I did a show um, back in, uh, uh, in New Jersey uh, back in April. So a couple of them have been from there. That was actually the, uh, the Let It Go guy. That was from April. Um, but... Yeah, we're, we're starting to run out of old whip songs. So <laughs> August 28th at the Maryland Renaissance Fair can't come soon enough. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I'm curious material. about moving into Renaissance Fair. So obviously you're going to do King Richards because you live here in Boston. Do you spend different weekends at different ones around the country that you can change to? What was the move into Renaissance Fair? Obviously you said your dad did it, but more importantly, how did... Do you just stick with one? Do you travel around? Is there ones that are better than other ones? Like, I'm curious at how that whole, I've been to one Ren Fair. It's been King Richard's Fair. I've been yep. meaning to go to Ren Fair, Baltimore my whole life. But growing up, I always worked weekends. I'm, oh, I'm terminally yeah. single. So it's not like yeah. I can use it as a date idea with, with couples or anything like that. I, I can only third wheel or fifth wheel to so many events with, with couple, my friends who are married couples. So it's like, oh, yeah. 
Uh, same thing with Cape Cod. I've never been to the Cape because there's nothing for a single straight white male to do at the Cape. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, hey, I support P-Town, but I don't need to be there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what I've my um, the move into, into Renaissance fairs initially was just sort of it's this kind of step up from street performing. It's still kind of street performing, but you at least have a stage and you have a set time and it's a little bit more organized. You still pass the hat at the end of the show most of the time, not at all fairs. Um, and so I defaulted to King Richard's cause I was going to school in Boston. I was living in Boston. Might as, you know, might as well go for the close one. Um, beyond that, it's been, you know, reaching out to festivals around the country that I thought I could get to without quitting my day job at the radio. Um, so the Louisiana fair has this set, uh, space there between their second and third weekend. They're a six week run. I can't do all six weeks, you know, flying back and forth, but. I can take seven days of vacation time, go down there, perform Saturday, Sunday, have Monday off, and they do, they do three days of student day. So I perform Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, doing a more student-type show. Friday off, do Saturday, Sunday, fly back Monday. So I'm there for 11 days. I'm performing seven of them, and that makes it worth it. Um, with Maryland, um, that was kind of, they reached out this year, and I have heard extraordinary things um, about that show. And Dude, I would like, like to Richard's check it out. If you like King Richard's Fair, the one at uh, Crownsville, Maryland, is going to blow your mind. From all my I've, friends that have gone to both, like, no. I wasn't impressed. No offense to King Richard's Fair. I wasn't, I liked it. It was fine. It felt small. It was not the epic thing that I was expecting. No. Um, by listening to everybody who talked about Crownsville's uh, res- you know, uh, Renaissance Fair or whatever Maryland calls theirs. Uh, and I'm I'm disappointed in myself. I've never gone gone to the Maryland one, and hopefully I will one day, and I can experience the difference between the two because it is my hometown. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, like I said, if you enjoyed King Grits Fair from what everyone tells me about the comparison between the two, I hope, and I hope I'm not over, uh, you know, giving, giving it too much credit and making it a disappointment, but... Uh, I think you're gonna have a great time. But anyway, no, that's that's what I've heard out. from every other performer. So how do they reach? Out. How did they find you to reach out to you? How does um, that process work? I assume. And the same thing with getting into King Richard's Fair. How does that? Is there an application process? Is there yeah, submissions? So King Richard's. Um, King Richard's was easy because my father um, still was in touch with them because we had worked at it when I was a kid, and so it was kind of just like we reached out to them, and I came out and did what's called a working audition, which is. Um, I came out, I did a day of shows. They did not pay me. Um, I just made whatever we made in the hat. Um, so I did that. They liked the show. They offered me a contract for 2008. And now I've been back every year since then. Um, with other festivals, a um, couple of ways can, can happen. So you can reach out to them. You send them, say like, hey, my name is Jack. I performed this show. Here's some clips of my show. Uh, are you guys interested at all? Um, in the last year, though, I actually have been contacted by a bunch of shows. I assume just them seeing my stuff on TikTok or uh, people emailing the festival. So, you know, if someone's listening to this and wants me to come to their festival, best thing to do, email them and tell them that you want to see Jack the Whipper. And that's what I've told everyone over the last, um, you know, six months, seven months since I got on TikTok, which is if you want me at your show, you know, they'll ask, you know, are you coming to this show or that show? I'm like, send them an email and tell them you want to see me. Um so they've, for the most part over the last year, reached out to me. And that was how Maryland reached out. Um, and I was like, well, I can only perform one weekend of your show because I'm already under contract to King Richards and you guys run the same time except for that one weekend. Um, and they were like, that's fine. That's fine. Send us, uh, just send us a quick video of some of your stuff and we'll be in touch. 
let me ask you this on, on the, the, the video submissions things for these places. Do they want, you said you sent clips Yeah. in comedy. Nobody wants clips. Nobody they wants want highlight show. Video. They want a full show. It has to be X amount of minutes. Anything more than that, if you submit it, they won't watch it. Sometimes they'll just go, we asked for five. You sent us 10. We just didn't even, you didn't follow the rules. Yeah. We didn't watch it. That's very yeah. rare. Most people will just watch the first five minutes and turn it off. Yeah. Um, nobody wants clips. Uh, and so for like festival submissions, bookers, clubs and stuff like that, is it similar for circus and Renaissance fairs and stuff like that where they want that? Or do they want a highlight reel or I don't is know. there no standard? I don't think there is a standard. Um, what what Maryland specifically requests, and I think these are public requests, um, is, you know, send us a promo, but your promo needs to have at least five minutes of uncut footage so that we can see how, you know, how your patter is, how your show goes. So we know you're not just giving us, you know, the best, you know, 30 seconds of laughs from your half hour long show, 45 minute show. Um, so that was what I I think I sent them... T- probably 14 minutes, I think. Um, seven minutes of like highlights and five minutes of uncut, sort of like the very open of my show of like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jackson Whipper. I am French-ish. That's an excuse for whatever mm-hmm. goes wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's good to know that there's similarities, but differences because like yeah. music, like I, my, I booked punk bands for a short period of time. Now, granted, all of this was before EPK, electronic press kits, yeah. You know, I was still sending out VHS tapes and I was lucky that some of the people used to would accept DVDs, but nobody, <laughs> God, yeah. nobody really, or, or CDs, like we could send you CDs, uh, but nobody, you know, that there was never a standard the way it is with comedy for, for it. You know, sometimes they were just like, you know, yeah. send, I mean, I we were, you know, I was just past sending out cassette tapes. Like it was just literally, I was just oh, at God. the point where I could send CDs oh, my God. Uh, to people and, and, you know. AOL Instant Messenger, I was doing it by text message because that's how we were connecting the things. I literally had to go to the public library to check my emails when emailing booking shows because oh I didn't God. have a computer. The computer I had, I'd wake up, I was doing a, a early morning radio, either overnights or morning yep. radio. Oh, so I would do all my emails before 10 a.m., leave, and I have to come to a public library in the afternoon to check when bands and bookers and, and clubs. Yeah. Wake when they're up. actually all awake. Yes. <laughs> and have yeah. to check my emails in the afternoon at a public library. Yeah. Um, you know, and even most of those places still didn't have email. I still did so much of it by phone call. Oh, God. Uh, so it's, it's to try and get those things, you know, they, there was such a weird, it's such a weird time. I'm surprised. At, you know, like there was so much more merit and honor base uh, of it and word of mouth. Those are the ways that you got booked either no. by, by word of mouth. Like uh, this band says you're that cool or that we saw you and we know that you're cool. Um, or you just had to talk up a good game. Cause trust even me saying a manager got me hung up on by certain clubs and bookers because p- DIY punk, punk rock ethics, you know? And it's not that I'm management material. I'm just the least, res- least irresponsible out of my five friends. <laughs> I I know that story and I know that role. <laughs> so, but yeah, with comedy now, it's it's you gotta send tapes. Yep. Uh, there's a couple of people that book shows that just like hey, you know they're like, hey, go ahead and message me if you want to be on the show, and it's like, oh, that's the show I don't want to be on. Yeah, because if they're not being discerning about their talent, it's then they're not discerning about their audience. Yep. They're not discerning about the quality of their show, and that's probably nothing's going to come out of it. I'll probably walk away more unhappy than <laughs> than I will yeah. about the laughs, if there are even any laughs. Because if you don't care about the talent you're putting on stage, you don't care about the quality of the show. 
Yeah, but yeah, pretty standard stuff. My is the one of the other things I've also done is because nowadays um, all of this is generally through through email. Is I will send them like I'll say like okay, here's a five minute promo, here's a ten minute promo, and here's third you know the full show on YouTube. You know that's kind of the way I'm like so like whatever you want, it's there. It's you know you can you can find it. Um, but also I mean at one point um, I actually just had to go back on YouTube and. I think five or six people had posted my full show to YouTube, and I was like, "Guys, you can't, you can't do that. You can't. Please. That's just, no. Please don't, don't do that." Um, oh, we have that same thing with comedy. Sure. Obviously, jokes only work if they're a surprise for one, and it is arrogant of us to think that somebody's going to find Joe Schmo's, uh, find my comedy through some random nobody's uh, Instagram reel or Snapchat or whatever. But it's still at the same time we want to be able to control the narrative yes. of how our material gets out there. We don't want yeah. you in control of it. And also we don't want you getting the dopamine that we deserve off our jokes. <laughs> also that, also that. Well, yeah. And it's also, I mean, like some of the, some of my clips have gotten, you know, 10, 10 million plus views. So like, I know like next year, I'm not going to be able to make that same your mom joke as a clap back to hecklers. Um, so I have to have a new one ready for whenever someone says, put it in your mouth because they are going to say, put it in your mouth. But, um, you well, there's know, that old song. Just song put is- it in your mouth. Oh, who's there was an old hip hop song. I remember that. So you do two shows. So you two do a solo different show. shows. Yeah, yeah. You do a well, solo show and you do a duo show with, with uh, Sess. Well, Sess, so have, who is a sword swallower, right? No, he's a torture guy. And let me just correct you. Torture it's, guy, that's what I it have, is. I have, I have two different uh, solo shows of my own, and then we do this combined semi-improvised show called The Secret Show. So Sess, normally, he's kind of doing circus side show, and nowadays he's doing a lot of knife throwing, which is mm-hmm. good because we need a knife thrower. Um, and the way The Secret Show gets put together is Sess and I hang out about two weeks before the show starts, and we're like, what are your ideas? What are your ideas? And we kind of just throw them together and we rehearse something maybe twice and then we do it on stage. I was and wondering how that collaboration came together. I was wondering how you, because like for a comedian to do a duo act is practically impossible. Other Unless it's just two guys who know each other and can riff really yeah. well. Uh, but putting together an actual duo routine is a difficult to, from start. Even more difficult when you're bringing two people that already have acts together. You can't like well, can't so here's, mismatch my act with somebody else's. It's just, it's, it's, just it gets even out. worse. It was originally a four-person show. <laughs> uh, so what we what we kind of figured out over the years was a couple of things. One is you need someone who's the boss of the show. They don't have to be the straight man, but they need to be the boss. And I kind of leaned into that role of like I would tell people like, okay, it's your turn. We need to move on. We're running out of time. We're gonna do this. Um, so like it's. My job is up front. I tell people, everyone, you know, that this is a PG-13 show. And Sess, Sess is sort of, he's not the sidekick, um, but he is more along for the ride. You know, the the big things we need to hit, the hat pass speech at the end of the show, I will do that. Um, and with Sess, Sess knows that I'm kind of going to, when we need to transition to a new topic or a new trick, I'm going to be the one that takes us there. Uh, but Sess also knows that at any point, he can jump in with an improvised line or, you know, something that he wants to do and we'll roll with it. Um, and that's kind of the thinking is you want it to be just improvised enough that you you still have those constant surprises. People can come back because we get a lot of repeat customers coming back. Um, so we want it to be different for them each time. But then enough, t- uh, enough scripted stuff where 
you have an idea of where you're going. So um, to give you an example, this past year, the, the way I introduced everyone to the fact that it's a PG-13 show was I, I spoke in a proper French accent for about uh, 45 seconds. And I explained that the reason I do not do a proper French accent is because if I do a proper French accent, people have, they have a, a, a hard time understanding the world. They have to focus on the words. And I don't want the audience to have to focus, all right? <laughs> I don't want anyone here to have to focus. And, you know, 45 minutes just going on riffing like that. So that was all basically scripted in my head. But when we got to that was basically just that I needed at some point Cess to make fun of my French accent. Um, when and where he did that, who knew? Just do it some point in the first 10 minutes of the show, and we'll go from there. So with a, a, a group act like yours, you need someone to be not necessarily the ringmaster, but the director. Exactly. Yeah. You need somebody that's going to go out there and go, all right, we need to do this part here, this part here, this part here. No. And your part that you do this can work with this part, and you need somebody to organize all of that. Yep. And then just everybody needs to play along. It sounds like you're working with people who don't have a lot of ego, which is good because That's, yes. comedians, you kind of have to have a little bit of an ego sometimes, of course. you know, but you also need the confidence to know that what you're doing is good. Um, otherwise, the audience can tell you're not confident. Um, yeah. But also sometimes, again, the difference in, in comedy is, you know, some people are just an act on stage and their person is something, you know, they're 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 they are their act and that's it on stage. They can't do anything else. They can't break past that. Luckily for me, my act is me on a, a, a unfiltered un, up to 11. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like I tell everyone, the person off stage is the act. Me on stage is being released. It's mm. like if I was that on stage, it's an amplified version of myself, but not amplified that much. Yeah. That's how I used to be before I realized I had to pull back to be palatable to people <laughs> in the world. Yes. Right. When I'm on stage, that is every bit when I'm at my, like right now, to be honest on stage, I'm not that I'm, I'm relearning that because yeah. I'm not on stage five nights a week. Like I was pre COVID. No. Now, granted when I sit down and I do a zoom show, whether it's here in my studio or when I, I just did one on my iPhone in a conference room at my new day job and hope it like having to, hush myself so nobody on the other door of the conference room hears me, opens up and goes, Dennis, what's going on in here? I'm like, yeah, exactly. oh, this is me just doing my comedy act in front of people on the internet. Uh, like, is, so is it weird? Is it weird not being able to hear people laugh? Uh, or having a delayed laugh, I guess? You All right, so the delayed laugh, luckily for me, there was very little not laughing. Um, other than, like, so on Zoom shows throughout the whole pandemic, I loved it. I was fine with it. Zoom. Google Hangouts. It, the only one I didn't like was Instagram because I didn't want to do my act for one person. One guy, my buddy Will Abels, he during the pandemic was doing his Instagram show, but he had his whole family as the audience. Gotcha. So he would go out, do the hosting, kick it to me. I do my act, and then you can watch his family laugh at the jokes. Yeah, that was fine. Everybody else. So the Instagram things that I've done is just I'm not doing my act. I just want to have a funny conversation with you. Yeah, and that's what we'll do. I'll, we'll do a back and forth with the host, but. So resume shows, if nobody was laughing, it was because it was a bad show. Luckily, I did a lot. And it's just like any other show. Good shows or bad shows in person. They're good ones or bad ones. I've done plenty of in-person shows where it's I'm doing my act and it's. Yeah. Because they're not paying attention or because I'm eating a big plate of dick on stage, you know, which, by the way, when I moved to Boston, I bombed for 10 months straight, bro. Boston's a tough market. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. It was I came up here with a very dirty routine mm. a very raunchy five minutes that i didn't even like and i might made the plans of 
wanting to scrap all that and start from the beginning. And I did. And so I just had to relearn who I was. Cause I, every time I did like one of my jokes was about like being the, the small spoon with a woman farting on her leg and your anus comes out and kisses her leg. And it's uh romantic. That is just terrible. <laughs> I hate every time I told that joke, it started out as a riff and became material. And I hate, died every time inside. Every time I told it, yeah. and I wanted to get rid of that. And that's what I used Boston for. And just for 10 months, uh, they they they're very sensitive up here, which you know, for me who I come from Baltimore, I live amongst people of color. I'm not afraid to mention that people are of color. I'm not yeah. saying bad things, but they would literally gasp if you said black person up yeah. here at times. Yeah. Like, they, and so again, I was also still relearning, not relearning, but learning how to deal with my presence on stage because when I moved up here. I have stage confidence. I have presence. I've been performing my whole life, you know, whether it was acting on stage and theaters and school and stuff like that, getting up and, and, you know, doing a routine in the middle of class. You know, I did stand up for the first time in fifth grade on stage and it was a combination of impressions, stolen jokes. And in the moment I riffed things in the moment as a fifth grader, I fed off the energy of that crowd. Like it was like, I knew what I was doing on stage. I just needed the material behind me. And that can be very off putting when you're confident on stage, but you don't does you, you have not earned that confidence with the material. So for 10 months, I had to learn all that. Um, and I, and, and I, maybe that was similar with you. Like you, I'm sure you, did you feel when you, uh, we're going to go backwards, but just on that, because we're on the subject, but, did you feel confident in, in did you always feel confident talking in front of crowds of people? Um by the time I started performing solo, I would say so. I mean, just from like I had done plenty of, you know, musical theater in high school, um which, you know, that's that's fine. I still get a little uncomfortable if I'm singing without a whip in my hand. Oddly <laughs> enough, I, as odd as that is to say. It's your um, metronome. If I have to do, if I have to sing or dance without the whip, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? It's like the whip makes everything, it just like brings the bar down. Like <laughs> I know I'm, I'm not a bad singer, but I'm not a great singer. And I think the same goes with dancing. If I know exactly what I have to do and I've had time to rehearse, I can dance pretty well. But I'm not about to go out clubbing at all. And you know, my wife will tell you that I am very, it's, it's very rare that I dance in any form. Um, so I was confident. I did. I do remember I had a moment one time street performing. I want to say it was 2014 where I was trying to build a crowd and it was a little bit of a slow process. And I was kind of like, I had a little bit of nerves of like, oh, what if they don't like me? Um, what if we have an issue? And I was sort of like, a, it doesn't matter if they don't like me because it's not me that's on stage. It's Jacques the Whipper or Jack the Whipper that's on stage. And that's if they don't like the character, then whatever. They don't like the character. It's not a big deal. See, that's the difference between what you're doing and comedy because for us as comedians, if you don't think we're funny, you don't like us. Mm. Because that's the thing. That's the difference, again, when it comes to stand-up compared to everything else is that – and you're just – you're basically doing comedy on stage as a character. You're doing more or less yeah. solo sketch comedy, which yeah. is great and also a hard thing to create and do. But for us as comedians – we're telling you our thoughts, you know, whether they're true thoughts or not, whether they're embellished or whatever. This thing, it's nobody has ever met somebody and go, ugh, that guy is an asshole and a terrible person and I hate him, but he's very funny. Yep. Nobody ever says that. Maybe we yep. will say that about our, each other. But for the most part, if an audience doesn't like 
it, that's why you get so many people that are the funny person in the office and they try to do stand up and then they're they they die on stage because your friends already like you so therefore they think you're going to be funny because they like you this audience doesn't like you yet or at all and it's 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 a struggle because and then for us if you don't think we're funny it's because you don't like us intrinsically in our head that's how it all works out whether we're right or wrong about that, but that is the way it works out. It's great that you can have that wherewithal in yourself. And for comedians, it takes a lot of time where you can just, it takes a long time for you to bomb at a show and just go, shrug it off and go, eh, they just yeah. weren't my audience. Yeah. It takes so long. Or you're delusional enough to where where you just <laughs> bomb and go, man, I hey, killed you know? that. Like, yeah. There's a lot of people that survive in this business because of that, where they're just, it they goes back to self-awareness. But it's nice that you can have that, thought of going look if the audience just doesn't like the act it's not me that they don't like they just didn't like the act yeah and that you can walk away from that um because comedians we are only as happy as our last performance on stage yeah it's i mean it's i've certainly had rough shows where it's like you go backstage and you, you know you don't feel good about it um but it's it's always a uh, i don't want to say learning experience because i mean sometimes sometimes at a, at a renaissance fair it's 95 degrees and it's your last show of the day and your energy is a little bit lower. Their, uh, their energy is a lot bit lower and it's, you know, it's not going to be an A++++ show. You, you can try and make it that way, but the audience is just going to be, they're going to be heat baked by that point. Um, and then you have days where it's like, it's 55 degrees, it's cloudy. The audience is like, they're so cold. They're trying to laugh just to like warm themselves up. <laughs> and you like, you walk off stage, you're like, I am a God. Yes. <laughs> But then the I, I I experienced this for the first time in uh, the show I did back in April down at uh, in New Jersey where I had I had told people I was doing it it was an absolutely free show come on out we'll be whipping at this you know local college uh, in suburban New Jersey and I had the for the first time in my life like a bunch of people came just to see me and I was like oh I can say just about whatever I want and they're gonna laugh. And it's such a, such a weird, I'd never had that experience in my life. And I was like, God, it must be so, so easy for people who have built this huge following where like they can just come out and say whatever they want and it's going to get, it's going to do well. Uh, two things. We're going to talk about the radio thing in a moment, but I want to talk about your transition to social media uh, because no. some people embrace it. Some people don't, some people try to embrace it and they can't wrap their head around it. Um, your movement, like I'm, you know, I look at your Instagram, it's only a year or two old, right? Like it's, uh, you haven't been on it. That, there's I not a lot of content I didn't start posting it. until I want to say November, December. And I didn't really start posting until I monetized it in April. Yeah. So where, for you as a performer, what made, so what made it click for social media for you that you had to get onto it? Because some of us, like for comedians, it was Twitter is mostly our medium. Because it's a Twitter written media. So yeah, I'm see, on Twitter. Has their things. I'm on Twitter for 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 my you know my journalism, and I it's God. It's like I feel my blood pressure rise every time I go on. But for me, um, so this past season at King Richards 2021, late September, someone posted a video of me doing um a parody of Bo Burnham's Welcome to the Internet, doing Welcome to the Secret Show, and that got within like a week 300,000 views. And then a few days later, someone posted a bit of me doing uh, my Fire Whip. And that got, I think, 2 million views. And I was like, holy smokes. Um, 
well, if I'm going to get this many views, I might as well, you know, I might as well go viral for my own benefit, especially once yeah. I was like, can you monetize TikTok? I was like, oh, yeah, you can. OK, all right, cool. So I made myself a TikTok and like just blew up like that, um, just posting whip songs, um, whip songs, other random stuff. I think I started I was posting Saturday, Tuesday and Thursday. And then once it started to pick up, I started posting, you know, almost every other day um, or maybe like, you know, five out of seven days. And it's at the point now where it's I post at least one a day every day. And yeah. And luckily you have that backlog of content because yeah. you're performing so much and you have all that video and stuff for me right now. I'm Twitter was, I, I wish I was better at, at posting on Twitter. I'm not, I used to be. And then a point in my brain, I just gave up on it. Cause it's like, I don't want to put every single thought I have on Twitter, which is kind of like the more you what post, it's there for. the more yeah. it, same thing with the algorithm. The more you post, the more you reward it. And I don't yeah. want, you know, I don't want to put out bad content. I don't want to put out just every random thought. Yeah. So this is what I'm also curious about was you have brought up already that you work uh, as an announcer, news announcer for you know, a local uh, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. <laughs> so what, because your mother was very adamant about you getting a real college degree. Yeah. Um, so, hey, what was your college degree? And is that what helped get you into working at WBUR. Yeah. So it was this kind of thing where when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor or a writer um, because I felt like that was still in the arts, but a little bit more respectful than uh, respectable than circus. Um, <laughs> and I had a teacher in high school who was like, you know, you have a really good voice for radio and you should look into that. And so I went to Emerson College. I majored in broadcast journalism. Uh, first day I got to Emerson after we moved into the dorms before any like classes even started, I went to the radio station WERS and applied for a job there, um, college radio station, not a big deal, but I got in, I started doing radio stuff there and I tried TV, I tried print journalism, uh, but radio seemed like where I felt like I could do the most of what I wanted to do and still get a performance, performance aspect in there. You know, you're writing your own copy, but you still have to perform your copy. Um, so that was sort of where I started. I interned for WBUR my spring semester of senior year, doing that whole, like, let's see if I can get a job out of this. And I did get a freelance offer out of that. And I was, that was kind of what I did for 15 months. If someone was sick, if someone was on vacation, they called me, I came in, I filled in. Um, generally not on air, usually behind the scenes writing. And uh, I have ridden that all the way up to full-time, to reporting, and now uh, as BUR's midday host. Now that's uh, during your your fifty month freelance position on there, where you're working only when somebody calls out. Yep. You're working holidays, yep. weekends, part time. What are you doing besides street performing to support yourself? Uh, circus and uh, that basically just street performing and, and Renaissance fairs. Okay. Um, so the first year, first year was real tight. Um, I mean, like it's you're 23 years old or 22, 23 years old. It's your first year out of college. You're never generally making a ton of money. Um, I'm 41 but, and I'm still not making a ton yeah, of money. It's you know, that, that's your life. That's life yeah. of a performer. <laughs> um, but I was, I was making enough that I could at least, you know, I could pay for groceries. I could pay the rent. Um, I didn't, you know, there were, there were only a couple of times that year that I was really worried about money. Um, and you know, I was able to make that work. And thankfully, if, like I said, 15 months, the last 
really six months of that were basically full-time at, at BUR, you know, full-time freelancing. So what I was making from that plus a busy season of circus meant I was like, oh, okay, no, we're, we're in pretty good shape financially now. So the tough days thankfully didn't last too long. Uh, during that period of time, because my experience with a lot of things, especially when I went freelance is no. for some reason, all my jobs seem to happen on the same day. Like, oh, absolutely. A great example is April 20th of this year. I had, for no reason, had nothing to do with, with 420 <laughs> weed say. shows, none of that. It's not my bag. I am very very adamant about I am very much against as, as a weed person. But yeah. on 420, for some reason, I had five comedy sh- offers for five comedy shows oh that day. God. Two of them in person, three were online. Oh, and I'm like, why? The rest of my calendar is empty. <laughs> like, why are all these offers on the same day? I end up doing two of them, one one on uh, Instagram and one in person. Yeah. And, of course, the one in person is all the way out in uh, Plymouth. So it's okay. not like I yeah. – and I'm hosting. So it's not like I could drive to Plymouth, do my set, and then drive back to Boston and do another yeah. set. I'm there for the entire show an hour away. So it's like that's another reason why I had to turn down these other offers. And it's like why constantly – Everything for me happens on the same day during that time period where you're like, hey, I'm 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 trying to get, you know, more in staunch at uh, on air at WBR. Hey, I'm I'm I need to go perform uh, on the uh, on this festival or this Ren Fair with this. And they're asking me to go in. Did that crossover ever happen where you had to make a oh, decision yeah. of which gig do I cancel? Which is more beneficial to my career and which is more beneficial to my pocket? Um, my, well, my approach back then was always, always, always circus. Cause it was generally almost always going to be a better paycheck. Um, even, even let's, let's put it this way. If it's a $200 show, I'm only going to make 200 bucks. I have to drive to Providence, Rhode Island and drive back, um, which is an hour for those of us not, not in the area. Um, so even the, whatever, five gallons of gas, that's still more than I'm going to make 16 bucks an hour, um, at, at WBUR, which is what I was making. I was making 1650 when I started. Later, they bumped it up to 19, but even still, 19 times 8, you know, 8 hours, whatever that is, I'll take the $200 for doing an hour's worth of work. Um, always, always, always. And usually, I was charging more than $200. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Yeah, by the way, it's before taxes, like 150 Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, for, for me, the, the answer has always been circus. There was, the, the funnier thing, I think, has been a couple of times where, They've been absolutely desperate. They've needed someone to um, host a shift at BUR um, in the morning on a day when King Richard's Fair is running. So it'd be like Labor Day Monday, um, where I have been on the air from 5 a.m. Technically, it's supposed to be 9.30 a.m., but I I would be like, you have me until 8.30, and then I need to get in the car and go. And there's a picture of me sitting... in front of the microphone, put drawing on my mustache with my costume on. Because I, I knew, knew at 8.30 I needed to get in the car and I needed to book it down to Carver, Massachusetts, down in Southeastern Mass, so I could make, you know, make my first show. So um, thankfully that has not happened in a while. But yeah, and then like, so one, I'm already on like four hours of sleep. And then I've got to go do five shows and I can't get to sleep until, you know, very late in the day. It's like, ugh. yeah, I just had a, one of those days myself, like Wednesday, I woke up at 5am to go walk and feed my dog, get on the tee, go to this new job, worked 10 hours, and then leave that job. By the way, carrying my, my trivia PA system, 
to work, leaving it sitting out front of the office because our office is too small to hold it. Get on the tee, go to my trivia gig, host trivia, and then take the tee and all the equipment back home. And meanwhile, I wake up at 5 a.m., I get home at midnight, and then at midnight when I get home, go walk my dog and sit with her on the floor and feed her by hand because she won't yeah. eat if I'm not home. Oh, God. Yeah. So she'll eat in the morning before I walk, and then food will sit in her bowl, and luckily one of my roommates can walk her, and I'll just sit there on the floor with her and feed her by hand so she knows that I'm not leaving her. Uh, and by the way, this is a dog. She has the brain of a tangerine. I don't understand yeah. why she gets so sad when I'm not around. But the uh, uh, and, and it's yeah, same thing. And I can't pass up on trivia gigs because it's not a lot of money, but it's the only money, money. I have coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's probably one of the difference between you know me doing stand up and you having to do these these performer jobs is so much of my stand up is still unpaid, and that's just the industry in itself, yeah. which is a travesty. But then when you look at some of the people that are in this industry, you're like, oh yeah, they don't deserve to be paid. And unfortunately <laughs> I'm still in the place where I'm right alongside those people where they don't make money. They don't see it as a value or anything like that. So it's like, even with those gig salad and gig master type deals, for some reason, the people in that don't see comedy as a value. So when you quote them a price of what your time is worth, what your experience is worth, they're like, oh, that's, this is a fundraiser. Why can't you just do it for free? Yeah. You know, I can yeah. get one, I can get the funny guy in the office to come up here and, be, and tell jokes. All right, then cool. Yeah. Have, I get a lot have of people. Lloyd go up there and let me know how uh, human resources feel, uh, feels about it afterwards. Yeah. I get a lot of people who want, want me to come and work their event until I quote them the price, especially if they're, you know, they're, you know, not within driving distance of Boston, you know, Iowa, uh, California, stuff. I'm like, you, you realize it's going to cost like a thousand bucks just to get me out there. Uh, mm. Just in travel costs, not yeah. not even to mention what uh, my rate is now. Um, and going back to the radio thing, so you have a like a non traditional side hustle. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you have a non traditional like in your world of of news radio. They're very straight laced people. Yeah. You know, like I came from rock. I, I came from rock radio and top forty, and yeah. uh, you know the entire music genre. They understand stand-up comedy because they hang out with comedians. Most of them are yeah. wannabe comedians. Yeah. In your industry, in your side of the industry, because I've also worked on the news side, they're very boring people generally. You know, they're <laughs> and, and that's not, I mean, I'm not trying to say that pejoratively, <laughs> but they don't go out to do a lot of things. They, you know, like, I, I talk they're to going, a television They're going to the Harvard person. Art Museums. They're going, you know, they're, not they're even going that. to it's culture. Just, yeah, there is. Well, <laughs> high culture, definitely, I should yeah, say. WBR is definitely the highfalutin culture type of people, but also... Just people in that industry, they don't do things outside of, of of that. They might go to a concert every once in a while. It's usually kind of a boring band or, you know, it's it's James Taylor or something like that. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you don't see a lot of people like in my experience with news radio. Not a lot of people were coming back the next morning going, oh, dude, I'm so hungover from the uh, church's concert sure. that I just yeah. saw. You know, like they're not coming back from going. I got to listen to my headphones louder today. I was at ACDC last night. Yeah. You know, you would, so let me say this. One is you'd be surprised, um, you know, what, what some of them get up to, you know, once, once the working hours are done. I've had people listen to me on air and be like, God, that man does not have a personality. And it's, you know, uh, <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm reading about a global pandemic, I'm not trying to throw jokes in there. <laughs> you know, not, not the right time. Read the room, folks. Um, but no, oh, I, I got think- I got thrown off. Uh, no longer doing Christmas Day at uh, because I moved up here to do traffic reports, uh, for for iHeart, and uh, I my first Christmas here I, I volunteered to work uh, Christmas and I'm doing the announcement. I moved up here as a producer to move to on air, and I did the joke of 
Uh, the traffic is backed up on Bolson Street because a sleigh a sled with eight tiny reindeers crashed into the Boston Common. More on that later. <laughs> and I got calls of people was like, why would you tell people Santa's dead on the radio? What is wrong with you? Did it, well, did you say that he was dead or just that a, that a sleigh crashed? You didn't I say. I can hear the kids crying in the yeah. background. They oh. got it. <laughs> um, yeah, no. But I mean, I think I think with, with the public radio folks I work with, um, they all, I mean, it's a wide range. I think there's the the mean, the average is more towards, I think, a little bit more straight-laced stuff. Um, but do but they, they look at you and your side hustle as novelty? Do they accept it? They're just like, oh, that's just Jack? I think Because that, yeah, even I don't as a comedian, spend... sometimes I got guff for being a comedian while working in news radio. I don't think they spend time on it. I think it's sort of, you know, they, they find out about it. They're like, oh, that's cool. And then they move on. And that's okay. that's all it really is, um, judging by how many times I've talked about it over the years, um, which is, you know, I think if they were more interested, it'd be like every time I walk down the hallway, they'd be like, all right, so what's the show going on? And I think, you know, at this point, they've known about my circus stuff. They've been more interested, I think, in the last six months with, you know, the way social media has blown up. But for years, it was sort of like, a, oh, you're doing King Richards again. All right, cool, man. Maybe we'll come on down. Good. That's good. And again, maybe also the reason I asked that question is because, you know, I'm a person that deals with depression and anxiety. And that's part of one of my kinks is hyper focusing on the pejorative thoughts of other people around me, the paranoia thoughts of paranoia. And it's nice to see that not everybody is like me, which gives me hope to know that what I'm experiencing is abnormal. And that's how I get through living with obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't suffer from it. I live with it because I know that my compulsions are not reflected up from other people. They're not because they're not the norm. They are my own head. I have to deal with them. That's how I have lived with obsessive compulsive disorder for so long is that I have to realize that when I'm being compelled to do a certain thing that is abnormal, I know now that it's abnormal. It comes back to self-awareness. I have to know that my hyper-focusedness, like when I worked at restaurants, the amount of 10 minutes I'm spending making sure that the silver is all straight and perfectly parallel and, and perpendicular to everything else that it needs to be. When I spend 10 minutes doing that, I know that I'm wrong. Yeah. It's not everybody else is wrong. It's me. So it's good to hear that some of my paranoid thoughts <laughs> aren't the norm for other people. So it's nice that you have a nice, healthy mental, <laughs> mental experience was... with, uh, with other people. And I, it gives me hope that I can get to that place there too. I think when I was younger, I had uh, more of that. I think as I've gotten older and there's just like more stuff to do, I'm like, I don't have the time to, to worry about you. And like, I, I, I do not, if I ever had any kind of anxiety or depression, it was extremely low grade, but I've never been clinically diagnosed with anything. So uh, I would assume that is not the case. Um, so obviously it's much easier for me as someone who's, uh, if not neurotypical, certainly very close to neurotypical to say that. That's so, good. No, I'm saying good. I also, see you. <laughs> I'm also saying, like, I, I say it in my comedy. I say it in the real world. I am open about my mental health because I want other people to be open about it as well. Yeah. If they feel compelled to be open about it. Like, I don't, I literally, when I started dealing with mental health issues, I wanted to remove the stigma. Um, there's a lot of it in my act. Uh, there's, I open, I talk openly about it very much with a guy that who I already opened this conversation with was like, we have never met. We've only spoken through emails. We're now seeing each other for the first, first time. And hopefully this won't, you know, we'll, we'll be able to hang out one day since we were both in the same city, uh, which there was a thought of me inviting you to my studio. Cause that's why I built this studio is to be able to do this stuff. But also I don't, 
under I don't know what people's comfort levels are yet still with COVID. Probably not the first time. Yeah. Um, and also it's the the studio's not the studio has been completely redesigned just for Zoom. So I'm gonna keep doing these things on Zoom. I get to use the video portions now. Yeah. Um, people can do it from the comfort of their own homes. It allows more flexibility with scheduling because we can do it anywhere um, and whatnot. So um, exactly. last thing I'm going to ask you about is uh, for people who are listening and they want to see more circus performers, whether it's on social media or in person, who are two or three unknown circus performers that you or people that do what you do or in your, your realm, like, We've talked about your friend Cess a lot who, you know, does knife throwing and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, somebody who is in the the circus style performance lifestyle that people can check out either on social media or if they're a touring person. Because I'll start with my two favorite people. Um, and one of them is Brian Brushwood, mm-hmm. uh, who hosts a YouTube show called Scam School. Um, and he's been a traveling, tra- he was a traveling uh, sideshow performer for years. Um, and he does a bunch of magic tricks, a bunch of like flame, fire eating stuff. He literally wrote the book oh, on nice. fire eating. Uh, I'm sure if you saw this guy, you would recognize him. Like he used to do this bit with the, the cups where he spins the cup. There's a knife under paper cups. He spins them on a wheel and then he smashes each one. Oh, yep, up, yep, 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 yep. Uh, and the reason he got super famous and viral is because he did the bit trying to teach people how to do it and smashed his hand through a knife. Yep. And that whole thing was fake. Yeah. yeah. And the whole thing was fake. Like he. Yeah. That's his his gimmick. Love everything have, he does. I have a friend who actually did put their hand through the knife. Ugh. I've done that like working in restaurants, just yeah. not all the way through, but stabbed my hand on and went, oh, yep. uh-oh, and picked, uh-oh. picked the thing yeah. back up. It was like... Uh, yep, yep. Uh, and then the second one I'm going to, to mention, he was on America's Got Talent. I saw him performing uh, on the Dos Equis Most Interesting Man in the World Tour hmm. with Angelo Moore, who's the lead singer of Fishbone, which is the reason I went. One of my favorite bands, Fishbone, the lead singer, who is a born Jehovah's Witness turned Rastafarian lead singer of a ska funk soul band. Yeah. (laughs) Angelo Moore. Love him. But he had this guy who was emceeing this event with him named Mark the Knife Fay, F-A-J-E. And he bills himself as the world's most dangerous comedian. He does juggling. He's hilarious. He uh, is banned in multiple countries for juggling flaming chainsaws, as he says. Uh, I think he's one of the most original people I've ever seen in that field. Like his jokes are great. Um, And I'm not going to call him out, but I've followed him on social media and I would love for him to get back into performing again. He's kind of pulled away from it for different reasons. So hopefully people are listening to this. Go find Mark's stuff and tweet at him to get back in the business. Anyway, those are my two recommendations. What do you have, um, Let me shout out uh, the other two whip Renaissance Fair whip performers, which are Aaron Bonk and Adam Crack. Um, both of them have multiple world records in different ways. Um, what's great is like all of our whip shows are slightly different um, and different enough that you're going to get it. You could almost have three whip shows back to back to back and it'd be different. Each show would be different. So let me give them shout outs. Um, Seth Carney, obviously, he's performing now as the double-edged daredevils, um, I think, at the time of this recording, they're out doing a show in uh, the East Idaho Renaissance Fair. I think they're out there uh, all of July. And uh, let me shout out my friend Leah Orleans, who's making a new solo show right now, Tiny Girl Big Show, uh, where she's doing contortion, unicycling, juggling, uh, whip cracking, and whip target cutting while contortioning and unicycling. It's, she's 
She's awesome Ooh. and she's impressive. And, she has uh, more going on than Angela Moore, who is a yeah. Joe's with his turn Rastafarian Scott Funk yes. soul singer band leader. <laughs> she is she is one of my favorite people, and she's she's kind of like a little sister to me, and I and I love her, even though she's not that much younger than me. But <laughs> she's fine. She's doing great. Um, they're and they're all performing all over the place. So uh, Google them, look them up, uh, and and enjoy. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Jack. Let be ours for joining me uh, on this program and everyone. Thanks for listening.